Matthew 18, beginning in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity you've given us this morning to worship you. We thank you for the simple yet miraculous privilege of waking up, of being alive, of having a desire and ability to join with our brothers and sisters to make much of Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to to hear that we can hear have a mind to understand and that you've given us a heart or you can give us a heart to obey what you reveal today. And so, Father, we, we, just, we, we place ourselves before you full of gratitude, full of wonder, full of submission and ask that you would work in us. You would instruct us. You would illuminate our mind and eyes to see who you are. And then empower our obedience. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our last Sunday in this uh, eight-week series that we do every fall, we are the crossing, examining who we are and what we're pursuing, or or more accurately, who we're pursuing as a church family. And, And we are pursuing each other. We are pursuing those far from God, and we're all calling others to pursue Christ. That's who we're after. And we want and desire more and more people to be captivated by Christ. For Christ to either make them alive because they're spiritually dead, for Christ to captivate the hearts of those who are spiritually immature and wake them up from their slumber so they would pursue Christ and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, or in some ways to save people from their religion. In some ways to save them from the the works that they're holding on to that they believe are better than Christ. To help them to see that Jesus and his gospel are better than their theological knowledge, than their religious experiences, and better than their outward morality. The reality is you can have theological knowledge, religious experiences, and outward morality and genuinely be a follower of Christ. And you can have all of that and not genuinely be a follower of Christ. The key is, is Christ alive in you? Is Christ alive inside of you? Are you experiencing his life flowing in you, through you to others? Is his life more and more shaping who you are in your character, your conduct, your attitudes, your actions? 
We spent the last eight weeks walking through our covenantal membership uh, agreement, which is explicitly, thoroughly, yet not exhaustively walking through what we feel is spelled out in the scriptures about what uh, the life of Christ inside of you can look like. You can pick up a copy in the back. Uh, A lot of you know this. You can download a copy off the city. But to basically sum up what we've examined, a covenant member of the crossing agrees together that they have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, which they have publicly declared through believer's baptism. They are enjoying life in a local, this local church family through communion, through genuine relationships. They're investing their time, gifts, energy, resources into this local church family for the good of this family, for the glory of Christ. And this life of Christ in us will manifest itself in tangible, practical, healthy behaviors and attitudes like a healthy and vibrant marriage, healthy singleness until or even if God never sends you a spouse, a pursuit of what is good, holy and wise, turning away from what is sinful and foolish. And to be in grace-filled, humble, loving, forgiving, repentant relationships with fellow members and non-members of the Crossing Church. And we hope and pray that if you're of one heart, one mind with us, that you're taking the necessary steps to become a covenantal member. We've, we've threw up on the screen before a process. It's not numbered because it's not really sequential. They can be done in any number of order. If you're not ready, take your time, continue to walk with us, continue to act like a member, continue to serve for the good of this body, for the glory of Christ here in this church, in the city. If you need a a new members class, we do that the first Sunday every month. So two weeks from today, you can go through a new members class and and you learn specifically who we are as a crossing church. If you uh, need to fill out a profile, the purpose of the profile is simply to allow us to know your story and know who you are, where you're at, and how we as your pastors can shepherd and lead you and pray for you and care for you. That's really it. You can fill out the paperwork or you can have an interview. Either one works for us. Uh, Maybe you need to read the book, which is basically a summation of what the Bible says a a church member should be and do in a generic way. It takes about an hour to read. This is all part of continuing on this path to see more and more of us joining together with high intentionality, high commitment to see more and more people in our lives, in our city, in the nations enjoy Christ, find their ultimate joy in Christ by following him and being changed by his gospel. The covenantal member aspect of this is not intended to be an obstacle for you to overcome, a hoop for you to jump through a checklist for you to follow, a contract to be held over your head. But it's intended to be a path to affirm our understanding of what it looks like to follow Christ. To agree together, yes, this is what it looks like to follow Christ. To be in a healthy, vibrant relationship. And to say publicly, I love Jesus by His grace, and I love all these people. Let's go. Let's do this together. Let's chase this together. This life in Christ, this joy in Christ. I want to experience as much of Jesus as possible with these people until I drop dead. And so let's go together and do this. And when we die, it only gets better, right? Because then we get him in the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his presence with none of the hindrances that we have right now. So, we finished our walk through the covenant today by talking about the part of the covenant that probably weirds the people out the most, church discipline. Um, Because very few of us, seriously, I would be surprised if anyone who's a part of the Crossing Church has ever been in a church that has practiced biblical, healthy church discipline. 
you grew up in the Bible Belt South, you grew up in a church where, where probably that church practiced some kind of informal church discipline. It wasn't healthy because it was the equivalent of being shunned or, you know, raising eyebrows. Mmm, see what you did over there. Or gossip. In the first church I pastored, the older people would tell me about years ago people being churched. Who's heard that expression before? I'd never heard that. What do you mean churched? And I found old church business meeting records from like the 30s where, uh, you know, Brother Tom was churched for fishing on Sunday. And uh, Irene was churched for dancing. She was called dancing somewhere in town. Billy was ch- a church for drinking alcohol. Mabel was church for playing cards. I kid you not. These, this was the list of sins. And so I would ask these older people, like, what did that mean to be church? And, and they couldn't really remember a process. All they remembered is that at some point in the proceedings of the church, these people would be called out. and would be recorded in a book that they had been caught doing these behaviors. And no one could really tell me what, what, what happened next. Or did they repent, return, or, or you know, was there like a, a check, so many infractions, and you get a demerit, and so many demerits, and you get a violation, and, or whatever. I didn't see anyone churched in that book because they were racist or white supremacists, which we know existed at that time. I didn't see anybody churched for being gluttonous at the dinner on the grounds, which we know probably happened. I didn't see anybody churched for gossip, which certainly happened. And so this is how many churches practiced church discipline a couple of generations ago. Well, no wonder none of us grew up in that. Because people are like, this is dumb. Let's quit this. This is not helpful at all. So, but the problem with dismissing church discipline as unnecessary or optional is the Bible. The passages that we see in the scripture that show the church clearly disciplining members or calling people to repentance or holding people accountable to who they claim to be as a follower of Jesus Christ. So this passage we read in Matthew 18 is one of the key passages. We also have a passage in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift to the altar and they remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That the, the health of our relationships actually affects our public worship. We shouldn't be worshiping publicly or serving publicly unless we have these reconciled relationships. You have the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 being dealt with by God himself when they lied to God, lied to the Holy Spirit, the passage says, about their offering that they gave to the church. And God killed them right, right then and there. Now, that, that's extreme. It's kind of the New Testament version of the sin of Achan from Judges chapter 6. But it was how serious God took sin in the midst of his people, in the midst of his church. And, and, and on the heels of that, the church grew and the, and the people were amazed and in awe and wonder at how diligent the church was in dealing with the sins of its people. You have the example in 1 Corinthians 5 of the man in the church that was in a relationship with his stepmom, something that was so sinful, Paul says, even the pagans don't do this. And Paul told them to kick him out of the church, turn him over to Satan. And then you have the follow-up to that in the early chapters of 2 Corinthians where it it appears that he's repented and Paul is now telling them to bring him back in. Restore him. Be reconciled to him because the discipline has worked. You have the passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul reminding them the reason that some of you are getting sick and dying is because of your sin. 
The sin of superiority and exclusion. The rich were committing against the poor and alienating them in the fellowship meal and then partaking of the Lord's Supper after that meal as though they're one big happy family. And they're not. Because there's a division in the church between the rich and the poor. So the question is not, where did church discipline get off the rails and try and explore all that? That's interesting, but it's not really helpful. The, The question is, how can we practice church discipline in a biblical, healthy, gracious way? How can we take what we see in Scripture and take it to our context today and actually do this as God's commanded us to do this and not, and not get unhealthy? So this is how we spelled it out in our membership covenant. This is kind of the, the last part of it after, after the 12 statements. If the above covenant is openly violated, I commit, you're agreeing, confess my sin to God and to fellow believers when warranted, Repent and seek God's help to put my sin to death. Submit to the elders and other appointed leaders of the church to fight for unity and peace within the church. Follow the biblical procedures for church discipline when sin is evident in another with the hope of repentance and restoration. Receive grace-filled, loving discipline when approached by a brother or sister in Christ. And if for some reason I choose to leave the church for righteous reasons, I will notify the appropriate elder or missional community leader and seek membership in another church where I can participate in the life of that church as a follower of Jesus Christ. So one of the big issues in practicing healthy biblical church discipline is is this. What is the list of sins that trigger church discipline? Like when does this become applicable? When do we begin to take someone through this process? Or when does someone take themselves through this process? Well, in some ways, it, it could be every sin the Holy Spirit makes aware to you. You deal with it biblically in a healthy, repentant way. But notice I didn't say a public way. You you deal with every sin the Holy Spirit makes you aware of in a biblically healthy, repentant way, but not necessarily a public way. Church discipline is not about church members openly confessing every possible or actual sin or temptation that you face in your life. To be tempted is not to sin. Jesus was tempted in every way that is common to man, yet without sin. So you don't need to confess to everyone here, here's what I'm tempted to do, um, but did not sin. This is where I failed this week and, and did sin. Church discipline is not confessing to anyone or everyone your weekly failures. Now, now we would say for healthy discipleship, growth, and maturity in Jesus Christ, there needs to be people in your life who do know those things about you. Your spouse, your DNA group. Where you have the depth of relationship, the trust, the confidentiality, where they can know your struggles. They can know where you're most likely to be tempted. Where you have conversations with them and you're like, this is, when, 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 I, when I get like this, you know I'm not pursuing Jesus. I'm pursuing sin. So I need you to come after me. I need you to pray for me. I need you to encourage me. When I go quiet, I'm not engaging in group text messages. or I'm not texting people back. or I'm not showing up to different things. You know I'm not in a healthy place. Come after me, my brothers. Come after me, my wife. Come after me, my husband. And so we would say that there needs to be those kinds of relationships. And, and, and your spouse, bare minimum, yes, but, but we feel like it's important to have even someone other than your spouse of the same sex. So men with men, women with women. Because who do you talk to when you, you and your spouse are off the rails? You know? Who can you confide into when your marriage is struggling? And you're struggling to love your wife or be loved by her or your, or your husband. And so this is just ongoing growth and maturity as a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. But church discipline is not, not 
publicly confessing your sins to anyone and everyone on a weekly basis. Church discipline is not the leadership of the crossing patrolling the people of the crossing like some kind of spiritual cop watching and waiting for you to mess up so he can pounce and point out your sin and make you appear before us in this court and show remorse or grovel or beg for mercy. Like we're not standing around trying to see how many sins can we see in your life. They messed up again. You see that? I saw that. If you think of church discipline and you think Angela from the office, that's not what we're after. That's not what we're pursuing. Church discipline is not the membership of the crossing keeping a list of all the ways everyone has sinned against them and going to everyone and telling them, this is how you have failed me. This is how you are a failure. This is how you sinned against me. Now repent. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love, uh, love covers a multitude of sins. Not every sin needs to be a conversation. We love each other by God's grace. We see each other's sins. Because of Jesus' love for us, which motivates His salvation of us while we were sinners, we, we have His love in us. And we can use His love to cover the sins that we commit against each other and the sins that are committed against us. We see each other's sins. Sometimes we know each other so well, we, we probably know why you committed that sin. And they're, they're busy, they're stressed, they're tired, they're insecure about this particular issue. So I really know why they lashed out or why they treated me like that or why they snubbed me or whatever, you, whatever sins are committed. And in love, we forgive and we don't harbor, we don't hate, and we don't let walls build between us. Church discipline, as you see in the Scripture, is open, ongoing, public, unrepentant sin that is unashamedly being indulged in with no signs of remorse or repentance. And for the church to allow that to continue would would bring reproach on the name of Christ that that church is professing. It is to make it to seem as though this church doesn't take sin seriously. This church doesn't think sin is destructive. This church is, is cheapening the grace of Jesus Christ. Like, what did he die for? If sin isn't serious, if sin isn't important, then why did Jesus have to die? Because of sin, Jesus paid the price for our sins, so we deal with sin. Seriously, humbly, soberly. Even though Jesus crushed sin on the cross, sin is still present in us, in our church, and still destructive. So we make a commitment to you as leaders, and we make a commitment to each other that if for some reason sin in our lives becomes so open, public, non-repentant, destructive to this local church, then we will walk these people or walk people through a process outlined. And we will do it so that we can call this person to repentance and restoration. And that's any member, any leader, any elder, anyone who's a member of the Crossing Church. The purpose is always repentance and restoration. It's never condemnation. It's never punitive. It's never a process that's intended to condemn. It's a process that's intended to help someone see the danger and destructive nature of sin and call them to turn from that sin and turn back to Jesus. Now, if we call someone to do that and they continue in sin, there's going to be condemnation, but it's not because we're condemning them. It's because their sins are condemning them. Because they're choosing to chase sin instead of turning and trusting Jesus and believe the gospel. The purpose is always repentance and restoration. 
So what sin does a church discipline deal with? Well, an easy way to remember, private sins are dealt with privately, public sins are dealt with publicly. So Matthew 5 and 18, if you've sinned against someone or if someone has sinned against you, go to them one-on-one and ask forgiveness, repentance, seek, seek repentance, and seek reconciliation. If someone sins against you, it's so egregious that it's causing a division between you and them. If it's not a sin that love can just cover and overlook because it's ongoing, continual, and hurtful, then go to them. Well, who goes to who? Does the one who is hurting go to the one that they're hurting? Or does the one who is hurt go to the one who is hurting them? Yes. Who goes? You go. What if I'm this? You go. You take the initiative. If the Holy Spirit is revealing this to you that needs to be dealt with, you go. Whether you're the one who's hurting or being hurt, you go. And you ask forgiveness or you seek forgiveness or you repent or you seek repentance. And then you graciously give it freely and receive it freely. The impetus to initiate is on us. All of us. Don't sit around waiting for them. Go. And this is what's beautiful about a body of believers who take battling against sin seriously. We all deal with it ourselves. It doesn't have to be something that's always brought to the leadership. We would love if 99% of church discipline was handled by the body of Christ without the direct involvement of leadership. It's not because we don't love you or care for you or we don't want to be involved, but it's because you understand, the body understands who you are. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You have the Word of God. You understand by God's grace what sin is, what repentance is, what what forgiveness and reconciliation is. And so you are just handling it in your everyday interactions with each other. You're taking care of these things. You don't have to come through another mediator. You can go yourself and reconcile with your brother or sister in Christ. Let the Spirit empower your obedience, give you wisdom, grace, and humility to walk in repentance with one another. No one wants this to be like a school environment where the teacher always has to be brought into the issues of conflict or the principal's office. People have to go sit before the principal and be mediated. We, we, we don't want HR to always have to come in and have sensitivity training and, and conflict resolution. See the beauty of the body of Christ. See the Spirit alive in you, helping you obey the Scriptures in your relationships with one another. But sometimes, sin grows to a point where they become very known and very public, and individuals have tried to reconcile with no success, and church leadership does have to step in and deal with public sins in a public way. It doesn't happen often, but when it needs to happen, it needs to happen. A few examples of how this could possibly look. There's a number of examples. A covenant member of the crossing just stops showing up. Not, not showing up in our weekly worship gatherings or doing life for their mission community or a DNA. Various members have checked on them. They're just out. And maybe, maybe it's kind of this, uh, uh, um, you know, passive-aggressive, you know, there's just lots of excuses. I'm always busy. I've got to work. I'm sick. I'm traveling. You know, just on and on and on. Just on. I mean, and there are reasons to not attend a worship gathering, to not be in life with your mission community. There are legitimate reasons. We, nobody's checking attendance, right? It's not like you have to uh, be here 78% of the time to be a covenant member of the crossing or anything like that. 
There are legitimate reasons. We do work, we do travel, we do have vacations, we do uh, have other things that come up, we do get sick, etc., etc., etc. But this is just kind of ongoing, continual for a long period of time. Or, or maybe someone's just open about it. Like, I don't want to come. I don't want to be engaged in a local church anymore. And so conversations would have to happen. And there would be tons of grace and patience and prayer. But eventually the conversation with somebody who's just saying, I'm out. Eventually the conversation would look something like this. My brother, my sister in Christ, I'm pleading with you to engage in life with a local church family. Because if you love Jesus, you will love his bride. And to not be engaged with the life of a local church is indicative of something that may reveal you're not genuinely born again. You're not genuinely a Christian. So for the sake of your health and well-being now, but even more so for the sake of your eternal soul, examine your heart and ask, why are you not loving the church and wanting to do life with the local church? Something is not right. A healthy Christian is not cut off from the local church. It just doesn't exist. A covenant member, other examples, a covenant member is openly, unashamedly engaging in destructive behavior, drunkenness, drug abuse, domestic violence, sexual promiscuity, gossip, slander of other members, marching in white supremacist rallies, which I never thought would be a possibility again in our nation, but here we are being toxic on social media. There would be conversations that need to happen. It could be formal conversations between leadership and a member, or, or, or what would be best if it happens just within the body of Christ. Brother going after brother, sister going after sister. The people who know these people best, who, who are in the deepest relationship with them, who, who love them the most because of the depth of the relationship, they're having conversations. Are you aware of, of the damage that you're causing in these relationships? Are you aware of the damage you're doing to yourself? Pleading with you, turn from sin, trust in Jesus, repent, and come alive in Him again. It, this is ongoing, unashamedly public, unrepentant sin. This is not the daily struggle we all experience. Where we hate sin, and as soon as we've sinned or sinned against someone, we are remorseful, we are repentant, and we can say to one another, that's not the person I want to be. God, help me. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Help me to continue to pursue Jesus again. That's healthy and good. No, church discipline is reserved for those who are flaunting their sins. I mean, think about it. Either that person is genuinely born again, alive in Christ, and because the Holy Spirit is in them, they will eventually be convicted and broken over their sin, disciplined by God, uh, and, and will return. They will return. If they're genuinely born again, they will come back. Or that person is not alive in Christ and has only been holding on to religion or some outward form of morality, or some religious experience that they've had, or or, or their theological knowledge. That's what they've been basing their salvation on. They've never truly come alive in Christ. And their ongoing flaunting of sin is evidence that they haven't been born again. We don't need to continue to give them a false assurance of salvation by calling them brother or sister in Christ. In a sense... They need to be unsaved from their false religion so they can be truly saved by Jesus. And I'm afraid that's probably rampant in the Bible Belt South. 
For some Christians, not all of them, this is certainly not prescribed, but it is the story of some Christians. They, they will run the path of the prodigal. You just have to choose, chase sin for a season just to get a belly full of it. See that it does not satisfy. See that it is empty and it leads to death and destruction. And to know that the whole time the hound of heaven is coming after them, chasing them down, bringing them back. I've been through a season like that myself. About three years after becoming a Christian, I was in college. I had been very passionate in my walk with Christ since once he saved me halfway through high school. And I got to a season where I just was tired of trying. And this is before we discovered gospel centrality. It's sarcastic. We didn't discover gospel centrality. It was always there. But I didn't have a lot of the framework that I have now that God's graciously allowed us to, to get about you know, the gospel is not do more, try harder. I was engrossed in do more, try harder. And after three years, I was tired of doing more and trying harder. Just take a break. And so I went through this season where I just chased sin. Nothing egregious, nothing unlawful. I wasn't getting drunk every weekend. I wasn't being promiscuous. I just quit trying. This is my pre-Jennifer days, in case you're wondering. Didn't have her to help me. Didn't really have any discipling relationships, to be honest. Didn't have anybody chasing me down. But for that season, I just wanted to take a break. There's a lot more to that story, but for one of the big takeaways was that every single day during that season, I knew my father wanted me back. Every single day. But I allowed my sins to pile up, and I didn't feel like I could come back. I felt like I needed to jump through hoops to get back to him. I felt like I needed to, to prove myself. I need to start going back to church, or I need to start reading my Bible again, or praying again. I need to start obeying him and not committing sins and and then I can work my way back into his presence I I didn't know I could just come back and I wonder how that season would have looked different had I been in intentional discipling relationships with guys coming after me or in a church with healthy church discipline and they're pursuing me in love and grace I don't know Eventually, his love overwhelmed my excuses, and I ran home to my father, and he was waiting for me with open arms. And he embraced me, and it's, it's like I'd never left. He graciously allowed me not to make shipwreck of my life during that season. And it seems like many Christians will go through this at some point in time in their Christian experience. You see, most of the time, through the Word of God, the Spirit of God, we we walk in some regular rhythm of repentance and restoration. Like we can kind of course correct by God's grace on our own because we're engaging in His Word. We're engaging in life with the body. We have other people who love us, and we're hearing the gospel proclaimed, and the Spirit's convicting. And Most of the time, that we, we just kind of course correct on our own through the Spirit and through the Word, through the body of Christ. But, but many believers might be in a season where you can't. God will be faithful to love you and discipline you and bring you back and restore you. And it is beautiful when he does it through the body of Christ. And that's really what we want to create in the crossing. An environment of love, grace, humility, repentance, where everyone is committed to everyone's health and vitality. 
And church discipline is rare because Christ is so loved and we can be so real because the gospel is proclaimed so much and our sins are so forgiven and we're all just breathing this atmosphere of grace and repentance and it's so common. It's not because we're not pretending like we're not sinning. Not because we're not dealing with our sins. We are. But we are proclaiming to each other the gospel of God's grace so much, so richly, so fully that we're just drinking it in. And instead of seeing our sins, we see His grace. Instead of seeing our failures, we see His love. And it's just overwhelming us. And this is a place where sin is real. Sin is destructive. It's not fake outward morality. This is the nastiness of life that we're bringing to the table. But, but His grace is greater than our sins. And we are loving it and sharing it and singing it and experiencing it with each other. That's the environment that we want to create in the Crossing Church. Love the fact. Not planned, it just happened. Well, at least not planned by us. But, but we're walking through this series during the time of the year that we've been celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Because so much of what would drive a church to be a church that practices this is rooted in these doctrines that drove the Reformation. Namely, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, that we learn from the Scriptures alone. We can be right with God, even though we're sinners. Even though we've sinned from the time we walked in this building. Who, this morning, since we started at 10 o'clock, has loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? With all that you are. None of us. None of us have given Him all that we are just from the time that we started. So even though we're still sinful, we can't be right with God. Because our justification is not dependent upon our works, but on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We aren't left with our standing before God teetering and uncertain because we have good works we have to perform to get right with God. We can be certain and we can be sure we are right with God because it rests on Jesus and the work has been done. Being right with God does not involve us adhering to a membership covenant. Being right with God has nothing to do with our works at all. Being right with God has everything to do with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Our faith and trust is in Jesus to make us right with God and just in God's eyes. So we are placing the full weight of our hopes for this life and the life to come on Christ and none of ourselves on our performance. We have pushed all of our chips in and we're making one bet and that bet is on Jesus. That he's done enough to redeem us. To make us right with God. And we recognize that none of our works make us right with God or impress God. Church discipline can only be healthy in that environment. If we don't get justification, the church discipline will simply become outward morality and behavior modification to make this group of people pleased with my performance. And as long as I'm measuring up in your eyes, I'm good. God, help us never be that church. We are right with God through the work of Jesus, so we are free. Free from guilt, shame, and fear about our sins and failures because we recognize none of us measure up. None of us are strutting around with our chest out, impressed with who we are, or impressing God, or impressing each other. 
None of us are superstar Christians. We are all a mess. We are all a mess. Stack up your best week compared to the holiness of God. We are a mess. We're all broken vessels of clay, totally dependent on Jesus for everything that makes us right, good, and just. And we continually mess it up and have to continually run back to Jesus for cleansing and restoration. And none of us are elevated above any of us. Through the gospel, God offers, in a way, a debit card tied to his infinite fund of mercy, grace, and love of Jesus Christ. This card is pre-approved. It's paid for. There's no annual fee. We simply receive the card by faith, and when we sin, we swipe it to be reminded of what he's already done. To receive another download of his love, grace, and mercy into our minds and hearts. Not that he's continually saving us. He has saved us. We just need to be reminded of that continually because we forget And there is no limit. There's no application process you have to keep going through. You sin, you swipe, you're reminded again. You're clean. You're mine. This is freedom. It's not bondage. It's being family. It's not being a slave. Oh, no, 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 you say. That's too much. That's too far. You tell people that, they're going to take advantage of God's grace. They're not going to care about their sins. They're not going to care what it costs Jesus to pay for their sin. People are just going to keep sinning and using that debit card and just sending it up. Sin, swipe, sin, swipe. doesn't matter what I do. And I would say, and I think Paul would say, if you're not thinking that it's too far, then you really haven't gotten the doctrine of justification because it is that good. It is that good that you're tempted to say, it's too good, it's too much. It's too much grace, it's too much love, it's too much mercy. It, it is. It is too much. We don't deserve it. All we deserve is from the first moment that we sin the first time to be sent straight to hell. That's all we deserve. Immediately wrath, condemnation, straight to hell. That's all we deserve. That's all we've earned. But God, in the richness of his grace, mercy, and love, has given us life, adopted us into his family. People will take advantage of that you say, well, Paul dealt with that. And his response in Romans 6, 1 through 2 is this. What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The gospel Paul had been proclaiming was creating the same questions. It's too much. It's too much grace. Too much mercy. Too much love. And you're right. But it's ours in Christ. And it makes us a new people who no longer are trying to work to earn God's approval, but whose approval we have and whose love we rest in and we can never be separated from, not even by our own sin. It's only in this environment can healthy biblical church discipline function because we're not judging or determining the salvation of souls. That's the work of Jesus. We're not making each other jump through hoops to impress Jesus jumped through the hoops. Jesus is the one who impressed God. We don't. This is not a place where we're always evaluating and assessing each other and condemning and critiquing each other. We are simply a bunch of beggars who by God's grace have found bread. And we want to enjoy it. 
We want to eat it up. We want to savor it. And we want each other to enjoy it also. And we want people in our city to enjoy it. And people in the nations to enjoy it. And, and when we see a brother or sister in Christ eating mud, saying that it's better than the bread, we lovingly come alongside of them and say, my brother, my sister, let me have that mud pie and give you some bread. Jesus is better than sin. Jesus is better than what you're chasing. Kindly, patiently help each other once again taste and see that the Lord is good. Going back to that passage you read at the beginning in Matthew 18, church discipline is given in the context of Jesus' parable of the hundred sheep. One wanders away, and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and get it and bring it back. We love each other enough to go after each other. And the only reason we love each other that much is because Jesus loved us and came after us. And his love is in us to each other. Let's be that flock so that the love of Christ will be experienced, shared, and enjoyed by as many people as possible. Father, we are thankful for your grace to a bunch of sinners There's not a person on the face of the earth that deserves your love, that deserves your forgiveness. All we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have more access based upon our works than anyone else. All we deserve is wrath and condemnation. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we thank you that you have purchased our freedom. You have purchased our redemption. You have purchased our life. You have purchased our our breaking free from slavery. So let us enjoy it. Let us call each other to enjoy it, to savor it, to experience it. And I pray for anyone here who believes that sin is better than Jesus, open eyes and change hearts today. By your grace, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.